Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. Today, my guest is Lawrence Nahum. He's from Blockstream. He's the chief architect over there, and we chat about the recent RBF controversy, and Lawrence is in the pro-mempool full RBF camp, and so we talk a little bit about some of the ins and outs of the arguments there. We also chat about Blockstream Green, Jade, and also Build on L2. Now, I've got a new sponsor. Are you ready for something huge? BTC Prague is coming. It's going to be the biggest Bitcoin event in Europe. It's coming June 8th to 10th, 2023 in Prague in Czech Republic. This is a massive three-day event where there will be 10,000 people ranging from fresh newbies to Bitcoin whales to business insiders, developers, all being connected together in a unique networking opportunity. There will be more than 60 world-class speakers and 100 companies to assure both education and fun in a Bitcoin-only feast. I'm going to be one of the hosts of the main stage for one day, and I'll be on a panel also. You can expect a relaxed summer atmosphere, famous Czech beer, and affordable prices. Go to btcprague.com, use code LAVERA to get your discounted ticket. I'm looking forward to meeting you in the BTC Prague Citadel in June 2023. This show is also brought to you by Blockstream. They are the creators of Blockstream Green, an industry-leading Bitcoin and liquid wallet. It's available on your smartphone, iOS, OS and or Android and also on desktop. Gain access to powerful features such as multi-signature security, full node verification and Tor support. So you can use multi-signature with Blockstream Green. You hold one key on your device, another is held on Blockstream's servers, now enabling you to protect your wallet with two-factor. Now you can also have a time lock or a third-party third backup key to ensure you always retain full ownership of your funds. Blockstream Green also has integration with hardware wallets like Blockstream Jade, Ledger, and Trezor. Also, you can use your own full node and connect it to your own Electrum server. So there's lots of convenience and features available here. So if you're interested, go to blockstream.com green. Now, when it comes to Bitcoin, financial services and multi-signature, Unchained Capital are providing a multi-signature service for those of you who need a way to get set up they have a concierge onboarding program. They can onboard you into a multi-signature vault where you hold two keys in different locations and they hold the third key. Now, don't be worried if you've never done this before, you've never held your own private keys, they can walk you through the process on a call. They can ship you the hardware if you need it. They can do a call with you and walk you through the process of withdrawing out of an exchange or custodian or a single signature wallet into your own multi-signature vault. So this is a great way to give yourself that additional peace of mind, remove single points of failure from your Bitcoin security setup. Go to unchained.com, use the code Levera for your concierge onboarding program. And now onto the show. Larry, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello. So, Larry, I've known you for a little while, and I know, obviously, you're over at Blockstream, and you are, from the earlier days, you were working on Green, which is now Blockstream Green. And so, going to get into a bunch of stuff today around uh, the RBF, uh, which I'm sure is going to be uh, an interesting one. There's been some recent debate about that also. Um, but I guess, just firstly, uh, do, do you want to just tell us a little bit about what are you mainly working on these days? What's kind of the key items that are you know, from a Blockstream perspective or from a Bitcoin point of view, what are you mainly working on? Right. So I'm working on a variety of things from Jade, a bit on green, uh, although you could say less than I used to, and a little bit on other things, you know, like Explorer and or um, bindings for new libraries or working at the architectural level or integration level between, um, you know, different components that we're working on. So, for example, there's some dependencies across like Explorer, doesn't drive just the you know explorer at blockstream.info, but also drives the single sig devices like uh, Green, 
or, or you know, any Electrum wallet or Electrum compatible wallet that wants to connect to it. So there's always a little bit of coordination and integration. Uh, for example, we're updating to uh, Bitcoin Core v24. And um, are you running a mempool for RBF equals one? <laughs> we, we will. Yes, yes, we will. <laughs> for the time being, we're still, you know, we're going to flag for obtain RBF. But at some point, I don't think it's going to be necessary. Yeah, yeah. So look, just to explain for new listeners, um, let's talk a little bit about this whole RBF thing, because I, I have been getting some questions and I thought, you know what, we might as well talk about it and explain that, at least from your perspective. I know you'll obviously be uh, more on the pro full RBF side. And it's crucial to point out there is a difference between RBF, whether you use RBF or not, or whether the mempool policy should be full RBF. So do you want to, I guess, give us a little bit of a background on where this came from? Okay. I mean, as far as I know, at least. Yeah, sure. So as far as I know, uh, Bitcoin had some sort of uh, replacement built in from uh, the Satoshi's days uh, from the get go, or, you know, f from the time he was working on it. However, as far as I know, it was disabled citing well, I'm not even sure if he was citing this, but the, the, the explanation was that it was, you know, in, in regards to denial of service attacks, because if you could replace transactions quite freely, uh, both in terms of fees and in terms of uh, uh, mempool policy, then you could DOS basically nodes with, with transactions. And it, it basically wasn't ready, you know, for, for it to be enabled. Then at some point, there were various discussions about re-enabling RBF in one form or another whether, you know, the mempool policy level or, well, at some point at the transaction level. And, and, and that's really what, what, what happened. Obtain RBF is what we have today, which is a flag that you can set on transactions. And this flag, it's a bit of a compromise. Uh, this flag allows you to, you know, flag whether you, you're going to want to replace it later or not potentially replace it later or not. Yeah, so I guess just to explain, so for listeners who are totally unfamiliar, the idea is when you craft your transaction, the Bitcoin wallet, you might, depending on this feature, you might want to have that feature or the ability to later, let's say you start out with a low fee and then later you see, oh, actually I need to bump that fee. And that's where this idea of fee bumping or replace by fee came in. And the idea being that you could add more fee to help it confirm faster, let's say. So as an example, if I had just put out a transaction and then all of a sudden Binance just drops a bomb in the mempool and drops all these transactions and all of a sudden now my transaction is really far back. If I could RBF, that could bring it forward. But perhaps there's a, maybe a little bit more of a, let's say, a controversy or at least, at least a bit of a debate amongst community members and uh, merchants around the feature as opposed to, um, you know, because from their perspective, they were saying, oh, I want to be able to manage the risk with a zero confirmation transaction. But on the other hand, there are people who are saying, no, no, zero confirmation was never safe. It was never a thing. So how are you seeing that? Ultimately, miners can, can mine any transaction with or without the flag, um, any replacement thereof, and any node will simply accept it. So this is what we mean when, when we say policy. It's, it's, it's not a consensus rule. Uh, miners can ultimately create non-standard transactions and can include transactions that possibly the network has never seen. Potentially, they created them. Potentially, someone else has uh, given it. Uh, those transactions to them and and that that's kind of the baseline that's what you should like you know expect from a security point of view or from a confirmations point of view that's that's what you look at uh, a transaction with one confirmation is you know decent uh, you usually want more for bigger amounts 
six is just a, you know, a number thrown out there. It could be 12, it could be five. It really depends on your risk and the state of the network, the amount and so on, right? So you know, if you're dealing with big amounts, you really want to deal with transactions that get confirmed because uh, anything you see at the mem pool level can be replaced. And if there's incentives to replace it, like money to be made, uh, especially big money to be made, then you know, it will be taken advantage of. And, and in the past, this has happened in terms of uh, miners mining interest in transactions. So yeah, like from a mempool perspective, what you really want to have is some coherent view of what's going on. And there's so many things outside of mempool RBF that also affects your view of uh, the mempool. I mean, obviously the nodes you're connected to because potentially uh, you're not connected to all transaction and some uh, to all nodes and some, well, you're obviously not connected to all, all nodes, but in general, you may not see some transactions until they end up in a block, especially if they were very close to the block. Uh, but there's uh, like the mempool size, for example, like it's 300 megabytes by default. But if you have a bigger one, you may have in your mempool more transactions because you're, um, well, you have more space. And so you don't need, like when, when the 300 one, the default one gets full, what happens is the bottom of, of the mempool, the ones with the lowest fee rate, uh, those get evicted, which actually means you can replace them now, even regardless of the obtainer BF, because the node doesn't know about them anymore. Like they were in my cache, they're not in my cache anymore. I don't know about them anymore. So now any transaction that replaces them, even if they changes all the outputs, it's fair game, regardless of the fee, as long as the fee is higher than you know the minimum of the bottom, which could change, right? Because it's a, a dynamic system. Um, it doesn't have to stay full for a long time. It could, but it doesn't have to be. And th then there's also minimum relay fee. It's another flag that you can change. So your node may not accept all transactions you know, below that threshold. And the other one is blocks only. You can run your full node with validation of blocks and, and everything, but you know it, it reduces a lot your bandwidth use, and you don't have to have the full mempool. It also means you don't have a, a good enough fee estimation compared to others. And I argue that not having mempool RBF also gives you bad estimation because you don't see the others out there outbidding you in terms of the, the market because you don't see those transactions in your mempool if you don't run it. So now you're paying higher fee than people that do use mempool RBF. Because we can bid, or I mean, people that use uh, mempool for RBF can bid for, you know, the real market value rather than a limited view. And then, you know, they get delayed. Right. If you were, if your view of the network was blocks only, right, is that, that's basically what you're saying. Your information is reduced relative. That's one, of, that's definitely reduced. But I'm saying that also, if you don't run with mempool RBF, with full mempool RBF policy, then you don't see some transactions. Right? By nature, you don't see the replacement. I see. So you don't see the higher fee rate. So you may expect that a block that gets created gets created without those transactions when, when actually the miners have interest in mining higher paying transactions in terms of fee rate. And so you're, you're, you're bidding with the wrong information, like missing information. Yeah. And so one argument we've seen from some of the zero confirmation merchants and people who are pro this idea of managing the risk of zero confirmation, they say, oh, well, actually, in practice, people don't really do it. So they'll say, look, a lot of people, they signal RBF, opt in RBF, and yet only a very small percentage of them actually RBF'd. And so I'm curious if you have any view on that idea. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have quite a bit of uh, information about this because Green was one of the first ones to implement uh, opt-in RBF. 
And at the beginning, it was a checkbox on every transaction, which you could default to your preference. And well, at the time, through support and through you know users' feedback and social media and so on, uh, we gathered that people were often confused about this. Like, why wouldn't I always have uh, one the ability to replace them? Why would I want to have this or that? And then you know you have to explain, maybe put a little help. And, and, and what often happens is that users that don't set it end up being the ones that beg for, what do I do? My transaction is stuck for two weeks. Uh, because the transaction stays in the mempool two weeks if it doesn't get mined and uh, you know it doesn't get evicted for other reasons. And it cannot be replaced because of uh, um, you know, first-seen policy, unless you have you know, good connections with miners or relationships that allow you to push replacements anyway. And, and that's a terrible user experience because having a transaction stuck two weeks is terrible. But the, the reality is that it's only, I mean, it's stuck for two weeks, but if someone was to listen to those transactions and rebroadcast them immediately, like a joker, you know, a joker guy that listens to all mempool transactions, as soon as they expire, rebroadcast them immediately because you can. And now they're locked for another two weeks. And I mean, that's not user experience either. I mean, I'm not even sure that will, will, will happen because I, at some point I imagined the mempool will be full and that there will be some movement and, but who knows, right? And the, the reality is that you can't have that sort of UX. It's, it's terrible. And having to choose or having to set the, the user interface for this, it, it's, it's really like, why? Uh, why do I need to do this? Why do we have extra complex uh, configuration options that don't work? And why would you, I mean, the other option is, okay, let's have it always on and hide it from the configuration so that you can, right? And, and that works. I mean, that's what we have currently in green. It, it's mostly like an accident. Like when we were doing a UX revamp, when we did a, like a B2, B3 of the UX, we, we left it out for simplicity. And we said, we'll add it back in the advanced. And then we never did. Um, we could add it back, but just, you know, to have uh, all options covered. But I, I think this is like the, the best option because most users don't care. Uh, when they do care, you really want the replaceability. And the only users that get hit by this is basically what Luke Dutch Jr. calls discrimination of uh, Optin RBF, where some merchants, uh, you know, will not treat you the same. Uh, you could say rightly so. I mean, I think they should always wait for one confirmations to deliver you the goods. And, and this really only applies to stuff that is delivered online immediately, like anything that requires, uh, you know, physical delivery, that can probably wait the confirmations, right? Yeah. So on that point, I think one of the exceptions may be some of these uh, zero conf ATMs, right? So the idea, I guess the use case in this case is the user wants to sell some Bitcoin and take fiat and some ATMs will play that probabilistic game and say, oh, okay, we'll still let you have it on a zero confirmation as long as the fee is above a certain level. Or of course, you know, some of the well-known online merchants, people like BitRefill and others. I know Francis has mentioned this even over a bull Bitcoin as well. I think I sort of see it like we're going to a full mempool RBF world eventually, but maybe it was a question of should it have been put in at this point? Um, and I think that's probably the point. But I think I certainly think it's fair to point out that, you know, that maybe some merchants might be underestimating the level of risk there because really any miner who has a new transaction that's valid could put it in. And you, you know, at that point, you're, you're just, you're yeah, out I of mean, luck then. As far as I know, the majority of ATMs uh, do KYC or, you know, require a document. Or as far as I remember, maybe, you know, the situation is a bit different. So those clearly could do zero conf or one conf, so use lining 
Um, it's up to them, but you know they KYC you, so in theory it's harder to fool them. For the other ones, I, I, I really suggest the same thing, like use Lightning or do some sort of uh, other level of authentication that allows you to limit how risky this is. I think just because it hasn't been gamed so far, it doesn't mean that it won't be gamed, especially as incentives go higher. And like, I also think that right now there's so many you know, like low-hanging fruit in terms of security. Yeah, like all the DeFi and all the protocols that, that hundreds of millions are stolen or, or, or taken rather than stolen, I guess. Um, those are more, uh, you know, more interesting than, than getting a few hundred or thousands uh, from uh, some online mer merchants, I think, at the moment at least. So I think that there's, there's uh, the people that, you know, really support full mempool RBF and there's the people that say, well, it's inevitable, but for now, couldn't we just do it softly or do it slower or do it like wait a little bit longer, uh, wait for lining maybe to pick up a bit more. And that is an argument that I'm, you know, I'm prepared to, to have. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, it's one way to look at it, which, uh, which I think has merit. But there's also another one, the last one, uh, you know, several people that, that actually say, well, no, you should never change uh, first in policy. And that's simply not you know, incentive compatible. And I don't think it, it makes sense uh, in, in the future uh, even if, you know, they do. Yeah. And just to clarify here, just for listeners who aren't familiar, what is so-called first so scene first policy? first policy is the current policy. What we have today is first scene policy with the opt-in RBF. What we had before opt-in uh, RBF was uh, a first scene policy where you couldn't replace even, well, there was nothing to flag, there was nothing to show. And also there was another one where if your coins were, UTXOs were old enough, you know, you didn't have to pay. This This was removed a few releases ago. So all these affect the, 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 the relay and the mempool policy, ultimately. And yeah, like uh, first scene is when you, your node sees a transaction and uh, it won't accept another one later that shares any of the inputs, unless, you know, opt-in RBF, which, which allows it for a fee increase. Okay, so as we were saying, we were talking about first scene policy and uh, basically this is basically a policy that is currently in place until the, you know, let's say until the world shifts to a full mempool RBF world. But I guess people have argued that this is like a an unstable gentleman's agreement because in reality, the miners don't have to respect the so-called first scene policy. They could just neglect that and just say, you know what, I'm just going to treat everything like RBF anyway. Or they, as an example, now with the new version of Bitcoin Core version 24, they could all switch mempool full RBF equals one on in their config. And then from now, you know, the network would just be in a full RBF state from now on, right? Yeah. And, and they could have done this uh, earlier, either through knots or through, you know, Bitcoin Core, but patched. I think it's only like a few lines of code to keep the, you know, opt-in policy check and simply allow any transaction in mempool as long as, you know, they respect the, the fee increase. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's possible some of them were already doing it. Now it's easier because it's part of core for sure. It's less risky as well, right? Because I don't have to run something else or compile something myself if I don't want to. Uh, or, you know, use some patches that haven't been necessarily as reviewed as the rest of core. And now these patches have been, are in and have been reviewed extensively. There's been a lot of discussion around this. And yeah, I mean, it's really the node operator choice. It's off by default. Core didn't really do you know anything terrible. I mean, the only thing terrible terrible thing here is that it's not on by default. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
but yeah, giving user option is fine. Like they can turn the mempool off, they can increase their mempool size, they can decrease it, they can allow replacements. And allowing replacement is, uh, as you say, the most uh, incentive uh, compatible thing with miners. So what else are you going to do? And when it comes to letting the users decide, I think this is another point of contention because those in the zero conf camp, some of the guys over at BitRefill, they might be seeing it more like users in this, in one sense is Bitcoin node runners. And then in another sense, users are just people who use a Bitcoin wallet and they, not, they don't necessarily follow the RBF discussion and they're not really intimately familiar and they don't really understand this idea of setting the flag on or off. So in that sense, they're not really getting a choice or they're not getting uh, reflected into it. And uh, I guess that's that was the argument of why their, their use case is being diminished, let's say. I mean, the, the argument of the full mempool RBF is not just you know, it's better UX in the wallet because you don't have to deal with these flags, uh, you know, before you do the transaction. You just deal with it if you need to increase the transaction later. Uh, so from a UX perspective, yes, it's much better. But it, it, the, the important thing is the incentive compatible. And the other thing that sometimes I worry about is, uh, you know, I, I think the zero conf, they can probably deal a little bit with it now. I don't know if it's uh, they can deal with it in the future very well in different conditions in, in you know, with the mempool full and so on. Well, obviously they, they need to move to Lightning. Most of them already, I mean, the big ones already run Lightning. Um, so that's great. Uh, I think, you know, more users will move to it. Yeah. One other question that I think is interesting is this idea of will there be people who try to game the feature? And so I think Francis was talking about this in the context of his bill payment company and product, where, as I understand, the user is paying on chain and then... Francis's company is paying out that bill in fiat terms. And so he was concerned that basically people could game him and have a so-called free option on the exchange rate by only selectively RBFing when the exchange rate moves in a favorable way for the customer, but otherwise not doing so. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that, or do you, do you think the answer really is just that we, we have to drive lightning adoption? No, no, I, I think for that use case... I mean, likely as soon as there's a uh, 15% or more, uh, you know, nodes in the network and miners that, that run this, likely he will have to wait one confirmation to lock in the rate. At the moment, he locks it at zero counts for non-RBF transactions, non-Optin RBF transactions. But for Optin RBF transactions, I'm sure he already locks in later, like at one conf. I think it's just safe enough, right? If he was trusting zero conf, I'm sure he's trusting one conf. And uh, yeah, I think long term, it's kind of inevitable that he will have to switch to one. That being said, if uh, he's dealing with the, with the customer with uh, some level of KYC, maybe that's not even entirely true. It's up to him to extend credit if he has done extend, you know, enough you know, risk assessment on, on the customer. If he doesn't have any KYC, then yeah, the safest thing is waiting confirmations. Yeah, and I think one other thing I was hearing is this idea that if Bitcoin doesn't support, Bitcoin kind of broadly speaking, doesn't support this kind of zero confirmation use case, which I don't really agree with, but, you know, for the sake of argument, this if Bitcoin doesn't support this zero confirmation use case, people are just going to go and use like some shit coin. And is that a bad thing? I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I was uh, going to say earlier that I'm worried about build, people building infrastructure on top of fragile fundamentals. Yeah. And I think the zero conf is a fragile fundamental. So I welcome people that want to build fragile. I mean, if, if you, the, the, the biggest proponent of, of, of this uh, first scene, it, it's not just BitRefill, it's also, you know, Bitcoin Narrow, like John Carvalho, right? 
And, and I think his major use case is uh, integration with Lightning, like uh, onboarding, opening channels with Lightning. Yeah. If, if more people start building on top of zero conf and, and then it starts, you know, breaking suddenly, you know, we could have a, a big chunk of the industry and by industry, I don't mean crypto, obviously, but I mean the Bitcoin industry, uh, you know, being hit. Yeah. It's a lot of infrastructure and uh, that wouldn't be great. Imagine if all exchanges, uh, you know, were built on unreliable infrastructure and suddenly all got hacked with zero RBF with, with the, you know, gentleman's agreement. Like we're talking about Bitcoin, it's the, the money of, of uh, enemies, right? So we shouldn't build on top of weak fundamentals. If they want to go to shitcoins or altcoins, yeah, let them. It won't last. Yeah, I think that's a fair point that we're trying to build something that lasts here and maybe that's the direction the network has to go, even if it is a bit painful at the start. Maybe there's some parallels with even the whole SegWit block size wars and taking the hard path in 2017 as opposed to the what would have been quote-unquote easy to raise the block size back then, but instead taking the hard path now to actually do it the right way with Lightning. But that said, you know, obviously I'm a big promoter and supporter of Lightning. I, I love using Lightning and I, you know, I, I am a BitRefill user myself as an example and I use Lightning, so I'm not uh, just LARPing here. But I think one fair criticism could be that uh, Lightning adoption hasn't gone to the level that, let's say, many of us were expecting or hoping in, the, let's say, the 2017, 2018 days. I'm curious your thoughts on that as well around Lightning adoption and the, the current level of, let's say, the average Bitcoin transaction average bitcoin user experience today look i can see both from uh, just looking at the bitcoin industry but also looking at blockchain that yes lightning needs uh needs a lot of work and will need uh, quite a bit of work for you know the foreseeable years i, I mean it, it's possible in 10 years is going to be done but in, in general i think there's so many improvements that, that can be applied that i can't see any you know development slowing down for for the next few years for sure I think some system will benefit with, uh, you know, better models. Uh, like if you have recurring customers and Lightning doesn't work well enough for you for whatever reason, well, let them, you know, pay in advance and prepay, like preload their accounts uh, because that often works. Like, okay, I, I need to go to the ATM. Okay, I'll, I'll use Lightning. But if Lightning is not good enough because, I don't know, the, the channels don't really work well for the amounts that I'm trying to withdraw, well, then maybe your best bet is to send in advance. You know, you send in advance when it has at least one confirm, you walk to the ATM and get your cash out. Yeah, it's not optimal, but I mean, generally, you know in advance when you want to go to the ATM and probably it gets confirmed before you even walk there or, you know, drive there. Yeah, so I think that depends on how tech savvy the user is, right? Because if it's, let's say, someone like you or me or a listener of this podcast, yeah, probably they're happy to use the app. But let's say someone who's not as tech savvy, they're kind of expecting to just go to the ATM and just use it then and there. I can understand from that point of view. But that said, we are seeing, for example, as an, yeah, as an example, we're seeing LN Markets or Collider as an example now where they have these Lightning Market exchanges and you can like instantly deposit, instantly withdraw with Lightning. So there really has been a massive improvement in the user experience if you use Lightning the right way. And so to some extent, there's a criticism of, oh, look, see, a lot of Bitcoin users are stuck in 2015 wallet user experience. But if you upgrade and use some of the, you know, the new 2022 stuff, it is actually very slick and it is very fast and easy. But I think part of it is getting the word out to people who are, without knowing, they're just kind of stuck on older wallets. So you're basically saying that the issue is liquidity there and uh, the fact that people haven't, you know, open channels beforehand. 
and I think some of them maybe, and in fairness, right, the early days of Lightning, let's say the user experience was not that great, right? Unless you were an advanced user and even then you had to do a lot of manual fiddling around. Whereas nowadays, if you pick up some of these easy Lightning phone wallets, like even if you're not an advanced user, even if you're not running your own Lightning node, like at home kind of thing, or on, on your own VPS, etc. that nowadays, if you have some of these advanced Lightning wallets, it is pretty slick. So, you know, we'll see what happens with that. And then on-chain will obviously still works today, and many do still use it today, obviously, but maybe that becomes more useful for the higher value transactions. You know, as many of us were saying, the idea is Lightning for the small stuff and Bitcoin on-chain for the bigger things. Yeah, I think naturally um, Lightning will have more channels and more capacity. And as it has more capacity and it's cheaper to use Lightning than, than on-chain, of course, then yes, I, I, I expect this move, right, where higher value transactions are all on-chain and, and the rest, if possible, on Lightning. Yeah. So yeah, so I think anyway, I guess to sort of round off the discussion then, in a way, just to summarize, there's this concept of RBF, replaced by fee, and that is basically giving you the possibility to increase the fee that you attach to a transaction. This recent debate or controversy was about what the defaults and what the mempool policy should be across Bitcoin's network of nodes. So I think, at least from my perspective, I think we were going to full RBF anyway, but it's probably, you could argue that maybe it was a bit premature. I think that's probably a fair point. But nevertheless, the option is there now and it's default off. But there's users out there, if they want to, they can go into their bitcoin.conf, their configuration file, set that mempool full RBF equals one. And then now your node is basically treating all the transactions like they have signaled for RBF is how I would summarize it, right? Yeah, it's as if everything signaled or, but the signal, but, but the flag can be off. Well, so it's not just the feed that you can change. You can actually change uh, all the outputs and potentially Correct, yeah. uh, all the inputs are minus one and that's our replacement. But yeah, no, as for the rest, uh, that's correct. So let's chat a little bit about Blockstream Green and uh, you know what the latest is. Oh, and also uh, I thought you would like this. Um, I So I was in El Salvador recently and they had this school children's course for Bitcoin and it was called Mi Prima Bitcoin. And as part of that, they got a bunch of us to come, a bunch of well-known like Bitcoin people to come from the conference and just come along and be a, a, a verifier or a tester um, for the student. And these are young students in school, obviously. And as part of their test, they had to create a moon wallet, right? And create, write down the, the backup from that and then recover a backup into Blockstream Green and then spend out of Blockstream Green into that moon wallet. So, you know, they had to actually use Blockstream Green as part of that process. So I thought you'd like to hear that story. It's an interesting one. That, and um, the idea is that they're hoping to roll that program out to more and more schools if they can demo and show, hey, it worked here. These kids now know how to use Bitcoin. They know how to use Lightning and so on. That's very cool. And I think it's, um, you know, very interesting that they're also, they're also teaching like the recovery part, which is uh, very important obviously and most people don't do it until too late so i think it's great yeah so um let's chat a little bit about the latest with blockstream green so i guess for listeners who aren't familiar it's a single signature or multi-signature wallet you can use bitcoin or liquid on the wallet and you can also connect it with your own full node and then i guess the the, the other big idea is that it's connected with blockstream jade or you have that integration so you can use it more easily with that so do you want to tell us the latest with blockstream green yeah no so what you said is exact i was going to say we also support ledger and trezor on on jade 
and I'm hoping that we will support the, you know all major you know other wallets uh, out there. Like I like to support Coldcard, I like to support uh, Bitbox and so on. What are the latest? Well, so at the moment we we have you know the apps on Android, iOS, and desktop. We're adding some support for single sig uh, liquid hardware wallets, which we didn't have. We had multi sig support, but single sig. Um, we were still missing. Uh, we're doing a UX revamp again, where we're really focusing on uh, simplifying the user experience while leaving, um, you know, still uh, some space for advanced users to do their thing. I don't know if you used it recently. We have a coin selection. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, we're also, you know, looking at improving the integration with Jade, obviously. In the future, minor things that I'm particularly interested in focused in, in green that are relevant to this co to this interview. Uh, I like to. We don't have uh, child pays for parent in uh, the wallet. I would like to add it, and also at some point, you know, uh, enable replacement regardless of there be a flag. So stop signaling once it becomes reliable enough. Working on adding lightning. All right. On green. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about how that would work or what kind of ideas you have like is it going to be sort of like an on-the-fly channel model or is it going to be more like a, you manually set up your channels or what's the idea so yeah we're still working a little bit on on that part in terms of onboarding in terms of uh, opening channels whether it's uh, you know uh, the user can choose ad hoc and just open channels on you know simply when there's no route or whether we want the user to you know, have the option to open a number of channels uh, ahead of time with the big liquidity providers and so on. So for that part, we're still working on it. And the model is that you can use uh, this wallet from uh, any device that you own, like whether it's your Android uh, or iPad or desktop device. And it's like an instant on um, landing wallet. We'll probably, you know, start with less features and, and, and add them as, as we go along. Uh, I can't really say yet what's going to be inside, uh, you know, the MVP, the minimum viable product that we're going to come out with. But it's really interesting times, you know, in terms of uh, not just the features themselves, but also the, the, the whole integration in terms of UX within the wallet, you know, to support the whole a single sig on chain as well as lining yeah that's that's a tricky one to balance for users as well and i know some wallets to kind of go for this all or nothing approach right it's just kind of everything is bitcoin native or it's everything is lightning native um but to manage kind of different balances is uh a different uh is kind of a you have to think about that for the user yeah for sure and i don't know if i mentioned it but also we are adding qr code support for green because we went live with Jade with QR code support. By the way, did you receive yours? I have ordered some. I haven't got it yet. So unfortunately, I haven't. Oh, okay. So back when I was in Australia, I had a Jade. But when I when I left Prison Island, I <laughs> didn't have it. So I bought <laughs> two more and I'm, I'm still waiting for those. I haven't had the chance to uh, play around yet. But I know you guys have QR You've recently enabled QR codes on Jade. So that's that's really cool also. Yeah, I mean, we, we had QR code support from the beginning, but only to scan mnemonics. And that was uh, in a format that wasn't, uh, that basically required the printer because nobody, you know, cre created uh, ways to, to put these QR codes on paper or on metal. Until more recently, right? The seed QR stuff, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So that, that was the second thing that we had the support for, uh, normal seed QRs and compact seed QRs, uh, as well as BCUR, mnemonic QR. So BCUR is this protocol used uh, by you know, all the wallets out there that deal with QRs. 
And it's a way to encode a message that may be potentially bigger than one single QR code into multiple QR codes. So like a PSBT transaction can be a little bit larger, right? And uh, it may not fit in a, in a QR code, or maybe it does fit in a QR code, but the device display you know, doesn't have a resolution high enough for... Um... Yeah, to show it, yeah. So, you, you know, you basically cycle a number of QRs until the, the other end captures enough QRs to reconstruct. And it's interesting. It's, uh, it's a little bit complex, but it's interesting. And it has some error correction built in, not just in the QR codes themselves, but also in the messages. So potentially you need any five of these 30 messages. So you don't even need to cycle. If you skip five, you don't need to go all the way back to the beginning. You, you get another three, you're good to go of any of the next 20. Um, so it's interesting from that point of view. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a decent standard. It's, it's great because now, you know, Jade doesn't need to know about uh, those software wallets. And those software wallets don't need to know about Jade, but they can be compatible automatically as long as we all, you know, use the same standard. We'll be back to the show in a moment. The lead sponsor of Stefan Levera podcast is Swan Bitcoin. Swan is an easy way to learn Bitcoin and also buy Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin can be volatile, so it's important to have a good educational pathway and learning journey, which Swan provides with a range of free books and resources. Now, the holiday season is coming up, and if you haven't thought yet about what you're going to do in terms of gifting for your family or your friends, think about swan.com slash gift. This is an easy way to gift Bitcoin to somebody. It goes to them with a custom message in an email. They can then sign up with Swan and then purchase Bitcoin with the fiat that you gave to them. But the benefit is you're also giving them the benefit of Swan's world-class education and customer support. It's one thing to gift Bitcoin, but also with Swan, you're gifting them that ongoing customer service and support, that educational material, which is crucial to helping somebody go down the rabbit hole. So give the gifts of Bitcoin with swan.com slash gift. When it comes to using Bitcoin and making Bitcoin transactions, you need a Bitcoin Explorer. And mempool.space is my favorite. It's not just a plain old block explorer. It shows Bitcoin's multi-layer ecosystem. It's a comprehensive Bitcoin explorer showing the mempool, the blockchain, second layer networks like the Lightning Network. And you can use this to explore the Lightning Network and see what are some of the well-connected Lightning nodes, what channels do they have, and all kinds of statistics and information about transactions. So you can use mempool.space and host it yourself. So that means you don't even have to trust a third party. Now, if you are with an enterprise, mempool.space offers customized mempool instances with your company's branding, increased API limits, and more. Learn more at mempool.space slash enterprise. And finally, when it comes to Bitcoin hardware, coinkite.com makes some of my favorite products in the space. They have a range of hardware that you can use, whether it's for yourself or as a gift for your family or friends. The cold card Mark IV is the latest and greatest Bitcoin hardware wallet. It's an extremely reliable performer. It's very secure. It has more RAM and CPU for faster signing of transactions. You can set up this device without even touching a computer. So that is a fantastic feature. Now, on the cheaper side, there are devices such as the Tap Signer, which is about $40. Now, this is a lower security but also cheaper device that you can use easily with NFC and wallets like Nunchuck. I think a lot of people are sleeping on the Tap Signer, and this is going to be a fantastic tool for the developing world or for people who want to use it as part of a multi-signature or perhaps as part of their warm setup. So if you're interested, go to coinkite.com, get yourself a cold card, and use the code Lavera for a discount there.
Yeah, that's fascinating. So just to replay that for listeners to make sure everyone's following along. So the idea here is that you could compose or construct a transaction on, let's say, your desktop computer, and it shows a QR code or a, a series of QR codes that you can then scan into your device. And then your device can then read that and say, oh, do you want to spend you know, 0.1 Bitcoin to this address? And you hit yes or no. And then to in then you have to do the other way around. You have to ingest the signed transaction back into the computer to then broadcast it out. Or so I guess the idea is you could either do that to the computer with the webcam or on the phone itself with obviously with the phone camera. So is that that's generally the the flow that you're talking about here, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And my opinion is that is that it's not the best user experience because I mean. Uh, wait, it's the best user experience when it comes to compatibility because I can use anything out there, it works. It's not the best user experience because, yeah, I need to go and do this dance between the devices and the display and the camera and bad lighting and focus and, you know, there, could, there can be headaches uh, and it can take longer than having a USB cable connected. I think it's safer than a USB cable because you choose when the device talk to each other. It's not up to them. With the USB cable, it's up to them. They can talk. You may not even notice if there's a you know message or exploit and whatnot. That being said, I mean an exploit can happen either way, with USB or with camera. The library that does this uh, PC, uh, you know BCUR thing, it's relatively complex. Uh, it has been reviewed by us, but could have bugs. But then again, the USB stack has bugs. The SD card reader has bugs. Bluetooth stack has bugs potentially. And so, yeah, I mean, camera is not bad. I think SD card is probably better than camera because, again, you choose when they talk. It's, yeah. it's not up to the devices. And, yeah, I like USB as well. It's, uh, it's fast. And ultimately, it's really, I mean, the SD card is, is good for firmware upgrade and for signing transaction, but it's also not the best UX. Like, taking out an SD card and into different devices is not the best. Yeah, I think from a user experience point of view, USB or Bluetooth even are the best. Yeah. And I think it also depends what we're talking about here. Like, are we talking about this users, their big, big cold stack, right? And they need, you know, they're, they're not going to be signed. They're not going to be spending from this stack very often. Maybe they very infrequently use it. Well, then, okay, you might be willing to deal with a bit less uh, easy user experience because you're, you're only spending out of this once a year or not even. Whereas, let's say if it's more like, okay, I keep this here by my desktop and I'm regularly scanning and signing things, then that's a different case right and so then it's kind of a bit more of a you know finicky endeavor to do it if it's really like tricky um but you know it is also interesting to see there's just a range of approaches right and there's you know even like with cold card and them they're doing nfc now as well so that's like another way to even move this stuff back and forth although i think you know everything has a trade-off in terms of how let's say easy it would be to slip some malware or to feed a malicious transaction to the device i suppose so that's something that we have to always balance right yeah i, I think nfc is very interesting um i think that the you know the market needs to explore it because it could be the, the easiest thing out there and nfc tends to have a better stack than bluetooth in terms of security and so on so you know it's smaller and simpler and so on so i, I quite like that I, I like that there's a you know a lot of uh, options in the market for for this and you know on, on some devices you're kind of forced like on ios you either use the camera or use bluetooth you can't really use the usb maybe you can if you pay apple you know have to <laughs> or something i don't know yeah and so one other thing is 
this idea and this notion of making multiple devices work together with a PSBT. So I'm curious your thoughts on that idea that having like, you know, a Jade as one of your keys and other devices as part of a multi-signature. And presumably this could work as part of a some kind of a PSBT transaction formed on the desktop, let's say. Yeah, so I think the best thing in, in security at the moment in, in the Bitcoin world, which is in different hardware wallets manufacturers in multi-sig together, PSBT or not, but yeah, that's uh, that, that's the non plus ultra of security. It comes with the downside of extra complexity. You know, the the backup of every individual key or at least the N of M trade off uh, threshold, but also all the public keys, obviously, because then otherwise you're not able to reconstruct yeah. the scripts and, and and so and so on. So there's that complexity. I really think you should go and 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 and, and do that work and take the complexity in if you're holding, you know super vast amounts of Bitcoin, you know, like exchanges or uh, big family office or, you know. Or if you're Michael Saylor. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you, you should. Um, I wouldn't trust a single other wallet. I wouldn't trust, uh, um, you know, pretty much anything for, for those big amounts. And, yeah, for everything else, it's, it's all about trade-off. A, a mobile journal is better than a desktop especially if it's like a Windows laptop or desktop used with uh, the kids and video games and stuff. Also, Android and iOS are not great if uh, you have, you know, kids installing random apps or video games because uh, sometimes they have exploits and whatnot. Uh, but in general, yeah, mobiles are better in terms of security features than, than you know, your vanilla laptop. And then you have other wallets. And, and then you have multiple other wallets. Uh, I would like to see in other wallets more lining support because I think right now it's... Uh, you know, you can probably sign a transaction, but it's, uh, you're not going to see on screen, you know, the capacity of the channel and the old capacity and yeah, you're not right. going to see that yeah. stuff. So as I understand, there are some things where you can like have a PSBT to kind of open the channel from a hardware wallet or maybe close the channel to the hardware wallet, something like this, but not the overall thing. And I know there is also another project out there. I'm sure you've seen it as well. I think it's called Validating Lightning Signer. So this is like this idea of having like a specialized hardware device that has policy rules that is specialist for specialized for use as part of a lightning setup uh, and it's like a kind of warm signer but with policy rules so maybe that's the way it could go with lightning uh, warm wallets let's say yeah um, i think i heard about this and if i understand correctly the hardware wallet trusts an external validator and the validator creates you know some signature that the hardware wallet validates after it has validated uh, each you know transaction that's cool. You still need to trust this validator, but it's cool because, you know, it could be fairly well secured. What I would really like to see, though, is the validator running on the hardware wallet. I know it's not easy, and obviously the validator cannot be online. I mean, the, the hardware wallet cannot be online, but it could be connected to something online through maybe not the camera because you want this automated, but like a USB cable. You probably want to avoid radio for performance reasons, for many reasons. But, you know, a nice USB cable... And then you can automate all these transaction signing based on this, uh, you know. At the moment, it's external validator. It could be, for a powerful enough uh, hardware device, it could be run on board, I'd imagine, with some proxying of, of the relevant information from a companion, you know, app thing. Yeah, I was talking to the Ledger, uh, well, not, not CTO now, but uh, Nicolas Paca. I was talking to him about, um, oh, yeah. you know, the Ledger devices and what they're playing with or thinking about. And they're considering um, like a programmable, uh, like, like like some sort of uh, virtual machine or interpreter 
that you can give it some code. Um, I think they were talking about Risk Five. If you if you know the architecture, Risk Five, like ARM or you know X eighty six, but different, and uh, like an interpreter of that, and then uh, you can say, well, this code that you can compile externally gets this transaction um, decides yes or no, and then the device signs it or, or doesn't sign it based on what the script that run decided. I was thinking of something similar for Jade. Uh, I was thinking WASM. So a WASM interpreter, you write some WASM in C or in Rust or in JavaScript, TypeScript, whatever. And uh, you know, you could say, if, if the funds go to my cold wallet, I check the addresses. If it goes to my cold wallet, then always authorize it. Otherwise, don't. So that could be you know, like a fail, fail over thing, fail switch over, where my hardware will always sign to move them to a cold storage but not anything else. So, you know, as long as it's going to an XPUB that I'm uh, pre-approved of, then authorize it without asking me. Or, you know, as long as it's a transaction uh, through Lightning, like a routing transaction, and I'm making money through the fee mechanism, then authorize it. Or as long as it's a coin join, like a joint market or something, and I'm making money because they're paying me some fees, authorize it. Because, I'm, you know, the sum of the outputs it's, uh, that I'm going to receive, it's larger than the inputs I put in, then just authorize it because I'm making money. So it's like having keys online without really having them online because it's a separate device that enforces the rules and signs. And the, the, the device doesn't need to know the rules in advance. And the rules are not really hard-coded or, or you know, very uh, well-defined. They, they are generic. Like you can write code, you know, literally C or Rust code that takes in the transaction, decides uh, some stuff, uh, maybe even have some history or, you know, um, like storage to save, uh, you know, the last transaction I checked. I mean, you have many options. I would like that, which basically makes every hardware wallet like an HSM of sorts that can, you know, gotcha. be nice yeah. for lining, for coin joins, for swaps uh, on platforms where this works, you know, like Liquid or RGB or, I don't know, Taro. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, cool. So I guess the idea then is you might have your home node running and you might plug in your Jade as an example. And if the Jade is becoming like a validator, it's helping secure some of your lightning stuff at happening as opposed to everything being directly on the machine itself, on the PC that you're running your home node box on. Absolutely. It means uh, that they would need to hack both your, your, your the box to the, the server where you're running C-Lining or, you know, uh, L&D and the hardware wallet, whether it's Jade or Cold Card or other. Yeah. You could probably simulate something similar with a separate box, you know, to uh, maybe maybe on a different architecture, maybe, uh, you know, with a very limited stack, maybe, um, you know, BSD or... Like a, I, I, I can't say a Raspberry Pi because Raspberry Pis don't really, they're not top security in my opinion. You probably want something else. But there are things out there that, that you could connect to improve the security compared to what we do today, you know, with having keys online for Lightning nodes or for coin join, you know, people you need to sign in order to participate, right? Yeah, that's interesting, right? Because, yeah, currently those are probably the two main ones where you need some amount of hot wallet or some level of access to the private keys and that's where lightning and obviously coin join are probably the main one so as an example there there might be people who are running a join market maker or they might be running you know some something where they you know they they want to participate and for liquidity and maybe earn some sats maybe not a massive amount but something or lightning running a lightning routing node obviously and so then as the channels are sorry as the transactions are coming through you need to sign a new channel state and as part of that well you need you need to be able to do that operation. And so 
maybe that's another way. So one other thing with Jade is uh, the blind pin server. So do you want to explain a little bit about what that is, how that works? Sure. Where do I start? Let's start from Trezor. Trezor has a, an MCU or you know a chip, uh, a CPU that it's uh, you know what drives the display and uh, receives inputs from the buttons, and uh, it stores the private key of the I mean the mnemonic of the user, and either has a pin to protect the mnemonic. It can have a or alternatively it can have or, or additionally alternatively it can have a passphrase, right? And uh, generally the, advi the advice is with Trezor use a passphrase because the secret on the on the device can be extracted with uh, I don't know a few hundred dollars worth of equipment and some skill that may or may not be easy to to you know pull off. Then there's the ledger model where they use a secure element. On the Nano S they have both an MCU and a secure element. So it's a two chip model uh, design where the MCU the, the additional chip talks to the screen and to the display and uh, and that the chip is used for the signing of a transaction and, and safe holding of the mnemonic or private keys, right? Then you got the cold card, which is a bit different again. The latest model has two uh, secure elements of sorts. They're a bit different from the Ledger one because in this case, I believe they only hold the key. They don't actually perform the signing because what happens is in the Ledger, in the cold card model, in, in some, they only had one secure element. In the latest, they have two. Either way, the through, through your pin, the secret is revealed by the secret elements to the MCU, and then the MCU goes on and you know signs transactions. Now the ledger model, it's it's uh, it's interesting. It's uh, the the low level firmware. It's uh, closed source, but the apps that run on top of it are open source. And in a way, they say it's the, the most secure because you're running everything on the secure element. The secure element is a close uh, specifications or you know. You need NDAs to know more about it and, and, and so on. And there's no way you can check these things yourself. Like you can check that it has the, you know, the stamp that it was certified for all these things, and, but you can't check anything else. And, and actually on any of the chip, whether Trezor or Ledger or Cold Card or Jade or any other chip out there, you can't really verify anything. Once you have a device with you, you have no idea if you're running the legit device or a different one. With Ledger, you have this, Different thing where the ledger can say, uh, it's called remote attestation. The ledger has a private key internally and can send something. And this private key is authorized by ledger. So you know that's a genuine ledger device and until you know someone breaks the secure element because then they can sign and say, yes, I'm a ledger and they're not. But for now, it seems that ledger is the only one that can safely say I'm a ledger and you can trust it. Trezor cannot do that. Jade cannot do that. I don't think Colcar can do that. I mean, it has a serial number and everything and you can check the serial number it's cold cut serial number, but I don't think uh, you know there's a way to, to check any that it was manufactured by them and not modified. Other than the you know the plastic bag is untouched. Other than that, I don't think you can. Like if it was done before it was packaged, for example, I don't know if that's possible. But anyway, Jade it's more similar to cold card than Ledger or Trezor. It has an MCU with a secure boot and flash encryption, and on top of that, because I didn't really trust this hundred percent, you know, usually. People like uh, Ledger uh, tend to be able to break, you know, things like Trezor and Coldcard have been in the past broken by Ledger. And, and so I'm aware of, uh, you know, strong uh, attackers, what they can do, or at least I'm partially aware, right? I, I, I know at least the, the tip of the iceberg, maybe there's more, right? And so I, I couldn't really trust the security feature that the chip offered. And I, 
I basically took an idea that already had for green. Green uses a pin server as well. Um, it wasn't well advertised, but uh, we wanted a secure pin without having the mnemonics ourselves and uh, without being trivially to brute force because four digits is, or six digits even is trivial to brute force uh, you know, if uh, the stuff is just encrypted local. Which is why, you know, the, the hardware wallets don't use the pin to encrypt the secret. It will be, you know, basically relevant. You, you, dump, you dump the thing, you try all the combinations, you're done in, in no time. So this blind pin server doesn't know your pin. It, it knows a, a hash of your pin plus something else that is 32 basically bytes of random data. So it never receives your pin. It doesn't know your pin because we also support Tor doesn't remember anything about you and the data that it has about you, which is like the pin attempts left. That's basically the only information has left about you. The, and, and a public key that has been generated on your device that is uh, uh, basically ephemeral. Like if you reset the device, it's a new key every time. And it's unrelated to your yeah. mnemonic or, you know, anything like that. And yeah, basically there's a dance between Jade and, and this pin server. They don't talk directly because uh, Jade is, you know, QR codes or Bluetooth or, or USB serial. But the companion app, can take the messages, pass them over, and they're encrypted, those messages, authenticated and encrypted. The, the companion app cannot replay them or read them. And yeah, they pass through the pin server, the pin server replies. And at, at some point, you, you, if the pin is correct, you, you get back an AES key that you can use locally to decrypt the mnemonic on Jade. Or if the pin is wrong, up to three times, both the Jade and the, and the remote pin server uh, delete the secret. And uh, you can run your own pin server as well. There's a Docker image that we prepared, but you can you know, rebuild it or run it locally on the Linux box. It's very light to run. And uh, again, it supports store. And Jade supports alternative pin server as well. So you can tell Jade, hey, use this different pin server. Uh, I don't you know, want to use the Blockstream yep. one. Gotcha. So let me summarize some of that. Yep. Um, so basically, you have a, it's a hash of a pin and something else that is sent to the server pin yep. that the companion app sends to the blind pin server and the default case is Blockstream runs it for you, but you can run your own pin server and then it comes back and it basically sends back like a right or wrong. And if you get it wrong three times, you have to reset that Jade device basically and like put in the new, like put the mnemonic back in on it. But otherwise it's, if it sends yes, then it's good and it's signed. And then only then it signs. That's, that's the general idea. It's not per signing. It's uh, basically at the beginning when you turn it on, you can unlock it. Once okay. you unlock it, you can sign multiple times. I see. It, it works almost the same as the pin on Ledger or or Trezor and possibly gotcha. both card when it comes to... Right, so it's like logging into the device. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's just that it doesn't have locally the, the key to decrypt. It's somewhere else. The company app doesn't see anything. It just uh, forwards messages back and forth because they're encrypted. But both uh, the backend, the, the server and the Jade authenticate these messages. So that there can't be, you know, anything foolish happening. And yeah, I mean, if you don't like this pin server thing, not only you can run your own, but you can also use the seed QR or compact seed QR standard so that, you know, it, it, it's what they now call stateless other wallets, right? Stateless yeah. because you don't, you never store the secret. You reset it every time after you use it. I see. Yeah. So you would scan in the, it's like scanning in the mnemonic every time would be another way to use the device. Okay, cool. The reason I didn't go for um, you know, a secure element is because I think that the best secure elements are the ones where you sign inside the secure element, in my opinion, not the ones that just hold the secret until uh, later. I think that every hardware device can be 
you know, modified or replaced before it reaches you, or maybe it already reached you, but someone in your house has access to, to change some things unless you're really careful, right? Yeah. I, I think that the DIY uh, ecosystem is very cool. You should only do that stuff if you know what you're doing, really. But uh, something like the pin server is really the only way to be safe with, with the DIY, in my opinion, other than, you know, the stateless stuff. Because if you're not going to be stateless, if you're going to store state, those devices are easy to reflash or change or... Uh, update and it's trivial to decrypt the, the memory without something like pin server. But I guess in some cases there's a benefit for the statefulness if you are doing that thing where you register the multi-signature quorum, right? You register the other devices into your device so it knows oh, my change the change address belongs to you know to me. Right. I guess that's one benefit, but the downside as you were saying, it changes how you think about things if you're having if you're holding state in the device versus not, right? Oh, that's something I wasn't uh, even thinking about right now. I mean, when we were talking stateless, I was mostly thinking single sig. But yeah, I mean, obviously for multi-sig, it's better if the hardware wallet commits to the other public keys so that it can verify indeed that the change and so on belongs to you and nothing has uh, you know, changed the multi-sig policy. Yeah. One other thing we I wanted to chat about is, uh, so I know this is a Block Frame initiative. It's called Build on L2. So what can you tell us about that? Well, it's an initiative to get people generally interested in Lightning and in Liquid, uh, building on top of uh, C Lightning and or you know elements or other Liquid components, and, and yeah, making it easier in general to use Lightning. That's the idea. Yeah, and so as I understand, there's going to be some hosted activities. I think hackathons and virtual events and things like that. Uh, I suppose it looks like uh, as well from the site, there's going to be some mentorship and coaching and development programs there also. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't really add too much. And I think some of these things are still, uh, I mean, not exactly a work in progress, but we're still organizing the people, we're organizing the sessions and, and the infrastructure for, for some of this stuff. I was talking to some people earlier, for example, about Signet, because using something like Signet provides stability where you can play with this technology without really using neither real funds from mainnet or unreliable testnet. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So Signet, you can have reliable blocks, you can have a nice faucet that obviously always gives you fund and funds and you can reset it anytime. And um, yeah, because the other thing I was hearing is that lining doesn't work that well on testnet. Like the, there's not that many, there's, there's no nice, you know, network there compared to mainnet for whatever reason. And maybe on Signet, uh, we could have a more stable, better, you know, Lightning network. Obviously not for real money or uh, that kind of use, but only for testing and learning. Yeah, but for testing purposes and things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And reliability when, when doing so. Fantastic. Well, uh, yeah, I think that's probably the key um, points. But uh, yeah, in terms of any, I guess, uh, final points out there for listeners, any thing you want to close off with uh yeah well thank you for having me and uh, enable uh, mempool full rbf equals one <laughs> um <laughs> and that's it really <laughs> fantastic well uh yeah great to chat and uh hope to chat again soon thanks larry thank you get the show notes and the transcript over at stefanlevera.com slash 438 thanks for listening and i'll see you in the citadels